Well, the choir asked us a great uh, question uh, in that anthem. Now, are you ready for a miracle? Let me ask you another one. Are you ready for the Lord to return? That, are you? I mean, you're, you're prayed up. You're, you're spiritually prepared. Now, uh, you don't have anything you're ashamed of, nothing you're embarrassed of, nothing that uh, would make you tremble when you see the Lord coming to call you home. You're ready to go. Everybody in here saved. Everybody's ready to go. Everybody. Is that right? I imagine there's somebody got to get right somewhere. Um, and, and today's as good a day as any to do that. As we think about the faithful church is ready for the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Last week we looked at First um, uh, Thessalonians in that great passage uh, in chapter 4 verses 13 through 18. Uh, where Paul talks about uh, giving us comfort and encouragement in the face of death. And so we said that the, the faithful church doesn't need to be afraid of the future, neither death uh, nor the return of the Lord. Not death because when we die as a believer immediately our soul leaves our body and it goes into the presence of God for eternity. And uh, if, not, if we're alive when Jesus comes then he's going to take us and we'll just be, we'll be raptured out and we'll, we'll be uh, with those who have died and they'll be the first to be resurrected and, and um, we'll go up and we'll be with the Lord and, and he says so we should be with the Lord forever. So we shouldn't fear death. And we shouldn't fear the return of the Lord because He comes back as the living Savior. And He comes back to gather us His children and to take us to glory. And so that's where we're focusing today. And I want us to look at a passage of Scripture that will take us back into last week as we continue to go here through First Thessalonians. And look at what it says to us to be ready for the return of the Lord. Uh, some of you might be familiar with the fact if you've studied the, how we got our Bible and all that, that in the original format, the Bible didn't have these chapters divisions for us. And much of that is credited to uh, uh, 14 centuries after the Bible first came out uh, to a Catholic bishop by the name of Stephen Langton, who, uh, the, as the story goes, uh, as he would travel by a donkey from place to place to preach and hold Mass, I guess, that he would be reading in the original languages and said every time that the donkey would hit a bump or stumble or nearly fall, that that's where he would draw a line. That, I mean, that just made his mark. And so that's how the scriptures got divided into chapters. And most scholars of the New Testament think that there should not be a break between verse 18 in 1 Thessalonians 4 uh, uh, until we get to the end of chapter, verse 11 of the next chapter. And so for that reason, uh, you see that, that, that this death and the return of the Lord uh, teaching of Paul are all related. And so I want us to look at that today and see what he says to us. So if you go back with me to that passage we had last week, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll start at verse 16. And Paul says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you brothers are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. 
Now, we ask that simple question, are you ready for the return of the Lord? And when we read this passage, you might think it's a little bit strange to hear uh, the return of Jesus being talked about like coming as a thief in the night. Now, it's not that he's coming to steal something, but he's talking about how a good thief, and that's the oxymoron, how a good thief would operate. A good thief is going to be able uh, to get into your home without being detected, get what he wants, and get out without getting caught. Uh, that's a good thief. Uh, and that's the, the illustration that's being made about Jesus coming as a thief in the night. He'll come un, uh, suddenly, he'll come unexpectedly, and he'll come to get what he wants and he'll make his way out with us. And what we're talking about is he's coming for us as believers. Some of us, if you're living when he comes, uh, we'll be raptured and taken up. But if we die before he comes, then we know this, our, our spirit is with him forever. And then there will, we will be the first to be resurrected, the body, spirit reunited, a wonderful glorified body, and we are with God for eternity. And so we need to understand then that what he's talking about, like a thief in the night, is that it's, it's a, a quick coming. And, and, and it's uh, done very secretively, but it's accomplished very swiftly. You know, um, we read these stories sometimes, I hear them on one of the radio stations I listen to about dumb crime events. And this happened in Colorado Springs, Colorado, that uh, a young man went into a convenience store to rob it, and, the, and he got the clerk to put all the money in, in, into the bag, and then the guy saw a, a bottle of liquor that he wanted, and he said, put that in there too. And the clerk was quick to think, and said, I can't do that, because I don't think you're 21. And so the guy says, well, here, I'll prove it to you. So he pulls out his identification, his driver's license, and he showed it to him that indeed he was 21. So the clerk said, okay, that's, here, here you go. So he put the bottle of liquor in the bag, the guy left. Well, the clerk had what? He had his name, and he knew everything about him. He called the police, and boom, he would call in the next two blocks. Jesus is smarter than that. But when he comes, he's going to come like a thief in the night. Are you going to be ready for that? That's what we want to look at today. I learned something else this week in reading about and studying about this with the second coming of Christ. Did you know uh, that newspapers have a certain size of the font, the print that they use uh, for special events and occasions that they really want to grab the attention of the reader and that it is called second coming print? We've got an example of it here. It's been, let me give you some examples of how it's been used. It was used uh, when... Um, uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated. It was used uh, when Pearl Harbor was attacked. Uh, probably most recently, one of the things I think, well, probably was bin Laden. Uh, but I know that it was the headlines like that when um, uh, we were attacked, uh, when uh, the Pentagon and, and the two towers there, and we, we were talking about attacked by the Muslims. And isn't it interesting that the newspapers had this large print called Second Coming Print? They don't call it Mega world event type print, but they call it second coming type. Why is that? That's because there'll be no greater or significant event ever to take place than the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, when I asked you the question a while ago, uh, is everybody ready? Everybody ready for the second coming? You're looking for it and you're prepared. You got everything figured out, you know how it's going to take place? You know, you got any questions about it or is everything logic? You understand everything. Well, how about this? Let me throw this out to you. In the Gospel of Matthew, it tells us that when Jesus returns, all the nations will see us coming and they will mourn. When we read
read here in 1 Thessalonians, it says he's going to come like a thief in the night. And nobody's going to see him. It's going to be a sudden coming like that. And he's going to come in the clouds and not come any farther than the clouds. He won't come on earth like he will, like Matthew says. So which is it? Does he come like a thief in the night, suddenly, unseen, unnoticed, unannounced? Or does he come where every eye will see him and every nation will see him and every nation will mourn? How do you answer that question? Well, it's simple. It's both and. It's both and when you understand what we're talking about. And as we get into it this morning, I hope you understand that. That what we're really talking about is that we're talking about the return of Jesus and it really comes in stages. Now, the first thing I simply want to affirm today is this, okay? And I hope everybody agrees with me on this. Jesus will return, but we do not know the exact day. You agree with that? You understand that? Okay. All right. Now, ever since he ascended and went back into the glory of heaven, though, that's what a lot of people have spent their time trying to figure out. And all through the years, there have been people who have predicted the coming of Jesus, that he's going to return on such and such a day. And they've always had followers. People give up their jobs. People sell their belongings. Uh, they, they leave their families. They, you know, they give everything away and they go sit on some mountaintop somewhere because some, some jack-legged preacher told them that Jesus is going to come back on this certain day. I think one of the most recent ones was a radio preacher, Hal Camping, who predicted that Jesus would return on May 21st, 2011. And boy, he had people give millions of dollars. Now, I don't know why that, because Jesus isn't going to need any money when he comes back. But they gave millions of dollars and then they waited for that day. And guess what? May, 11, 2000, May 21st, 2011 came and Jesus didn't come. And so all those predictions have true, proven false. But so much time has been spent on wondering when. And people spending a lifetime trying to figure it out. Before his ascension, the disciples asked Jesus about his return. In Matthew 24, verses 3 through 7, we hear that dialogue. It says, as Jesus was sitting... On the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and, you will, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation. And kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these are the beginning of birth pains. So we've seen all these things all along. If you've lived on the face of the earth a long time, you know there's been wars and rumors of wars going on all the time. There have been famines, there's been earthquakes, all these things. Now when we think about what we've been through recently, we have snow in November, then we've had two snowstorms already this winter and an earthquake. Some people are probably beginning to sound the alarm. It's time. He's coming. You better get ready. Well, you need to be ready. But I believe that these are just more and more signs that say, like, like he says, they're birth, sign, birth pains. That when the birth pains start, a woman in, in, who is pregnant knows that it won't be long before there's going to be a delivery. Now, what about the exact day and trying to figure it out? You know what Jesus said, don't you? Matthew 24, 36, he said, no one knows that day. Not the angels in heaven, not even Jesus himself, but who? Only God the Father knows that. Now, here's what I figure. If God chooses not to reveal the date, the hour, the time when Jesus is going to be sent back to earth, he's not going to reveal it to anybody else, don't you think? So, next time you see some kind of prophecy, don't pay any attention to it. 
Because I don't believe he's going to reveal it to some jack-leg preacher if he's not going to tell his son about when you're going to be there, when you're going to go. I, I just have this picture of Jesus seated at the right hand of God, and he's ready. And he tells us to get ready. And at any moment, God might say, son, it's time to go get your children. And, and Jesus is going to come, and he's going to come for us. So we know he's going to come. That's a reality, but we don't know when, okay? Don't try to figure it out. The other thing is more important to do, and we'll talk about that. Now, the second thing I want to say is that the second coming of Jesus is a series of events. We like to think of it as one thing. The second coming is when Jesus comes down. But it's more than that. It's a series of events. And we look at uh, chapter 5 that we read a few moments ago, verses 1 through 3. And Paul says to, to the believers here at Thessalonica, Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. See, there's no concern about the time and dates. Don't, 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 don't tarry around with those things he's saying, okay? For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now Paul uses a very significant phrase besides coming like a thief in the night. He talks about the day of the Lord. He's not talking about one day. He's not just talking about one day yet to come in the future. But it's a phrase that was used so many, many times in the Old Testament particularly to talk about the day of the Lord when a, when a, a major event would take place that God would break into the normal routine and the course of history and do something spectacular. So that, that, he would do a miraculous event in the midst of the ordinary. And, and Paul is saying that's what it's going to be like in the second coming. You know, he said people are going to be saying uh, peace and safety. But it says destruction will come on them. So the day of the Lord, then he says, will come like a thief in the night. And, and the, all these little days of the Lord that we've seen in the past, they're just all leading up to that one big day of the Lord when the Lord does return. You know, it's kind of like if you go go to a concert to hear uh, a major group singing or, or, or an artist, solo artist. A lot of times they have another group or another artist who will come on as a preliminary act, right? And they kind of set the stage then for the star to come. Well, all those events we could see are setting the stage for the star to come, and that star is Jesus Christ. But the, the, the main event is the return of Jesus. Now, as we think about that, I want you to know, most some of the great Bible students, and so you know this. You know where you stand. You know their theories. There are a lot of different theories and, and um, theological positions about the return of Jesus. Um, when we get to Revelation chapter 20, the Bible tells us that Jesus will set up a kingdom on earth for a thousand years, and we call that the millennium reign. Now, there are basically three different camps of, of, of thought about the second coming of Christ. First is the amillennialist, and they believe that that thousand year reign of Jesus is not to be taken literally, because they reason after all that the Bible says, and it does, that a day with the Lord is like what? A thousand years. And a thousand years is like what? A day. So they're saying that thousand years is just a figurative expression. Uh, and so it's not to be taken literally. And that's why they're amillennials. Okay. I believe it's a literal thousand year reign. I hope you do too. Then another th uh, f f a theological um, stand by standby point on this is postmillennialism. Not very many people cling to that now. There was a time back in the 18th, 19th centuries, maybe even part of the early 20th century. Uh, that they thought that this was being fulfilled because this theology said that as the church grows and spreads and shares the gospel and people are saved, then lives get better 
They treat each other better. The world gets better as, as things go along. And then after a, a thousand year period of all that taking place, then Jesus will come after that thousand year reign. Well, two world wars have come along and constant wars and conflict today have done that. And unless you're looking at different news than I am, the world's not getting a better place to live, is it? It's getting worse. So I think you can take post-millennial and throw it out the door. I don't think, that, I don't think it's anywhere remotely close to what they thought was, a, was going is a good idea. And it should be a good concept if the church does what it's supposed to do and we witness like we're supposed to do, then their lives should be changed and people should be getting better. But instead people got what the scriptures say at the end of times, itching ears that they want to hear. You know, the certain things that they want to hear. But then there is the third group and that is the premillennialists. And the premillennialists believe that Jesus will come back before uh, the thousand year reign. In fact, that, that signifies the beginning of that reign. Uh, of thousand years is when Jesus comes back. And then within that camp of believers about being premillennialists, then there are two different camps at least on that. One is the historical premillennialists who believe uh, that Jesus will come uh, at, before the thousand year reign, but that the church will go through the tribulation. Dispensational premillennialists believe that the church will be raptured out before the tribulation, which will last seven years, and that we, the church, will be in heaven for those seven years with Christ. And I'll tell you later what's going to happen during that period of time. And at the end of that seven-year period of time, the tribulation on earth, then Jesus will come and establish a thousand-year millennial kingdom, and then comes a new heaven and a new Jerusalem and a new earth. Uh, we let, uh, had a class on this about these different views of the end time that I led, facilitated, I think it's on, I can't remember what it was, the spring or the fall, uh, maybe the fall. And uh, interesting discussion that we had, you know, interesting discussion. Now, I don't really care which viewpoint you hold, as long as you believe that Jesus is going to return. Does everybody believe Jesus is going to return? Do you? Let's see that. You believe? Okay. All right. All right. Some of you kind of, mm, mm, yeah. no. Everybody believes that, right? And I don't really care whether you're an amillennialist or premillennialist or whatever. I'd rather you be a literalist and take it that way, not being an amillennialist. So I, I would think that you need to be either a, pre, uh, a historical premillennialist or dispensational. And I'll give you some reasons why I'm dispensationalist, okay? But you might be like one pastor who said he was a promillennialist. He was for it. And another one said he was a panmillennialist. He believed everything will pan out in the end. You know, I hold to the dispensational premillennial uh, theory. Now, you can believe whatever you want to, okay? That's fine. And we can get along. You can go your way and I'll go God's way. It doesn't matter, okay? <laughs> Let me give you some reasons why I believe what I believe about the coming of Christ, okay? Number one, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, Paul says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you see, I think that tells us that uh, we will not go through the tribulation because once we come in Christ in a relationship with God, we're not going to experience any wrath. We're not going to experience that kind of judgment. And that's what the, the tribulation is. It's a terrible time of judgment on earth. A literal hell on earth. So we are delivered, I believe, from the wrath through our salvation. Then in the second and third chapters of Revelation, Jesus gave messages to seven churches. I believe they were literal churches that he wrote those letters to. And I believe they had those literal issues that he dealt with. Okay. But I also believe we can apply that to our church life today. That there are some of those issues uh, today in all of the churches uh, around today. 
But here's the thing that he said to the church in Philadelphia. He says, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I also will keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. And then at the end of chapter 3, there's no more mention in Revelation of the church. I think it's because, well, Jesus came like a thief in the night. The dead in Christ were resurrected and those who were alive were caught up with him and the church is gone and taken out of here and will not experience wrath. Then there's another reason, and that is in Revelation 20. And this is one of the key chapters in a book to help you understand uh, the, the coming of Jesus. He talks about two revelation, two um, resurrections. That there will be the first resurrection is the resurrection of the dead in Christ. And you go back to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And who does Paul say are the first to be resurrected? The dead in Christ, Okay. Then he talks about there is a second resurrection, and that's those whose names were not written in the book of life, and they will be judged before the great white throne of God, and they will then be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. Why? It's because they did not have their name written in the book of life. They didn't confess Christ as their Savior, and they're doomed in the lake of fire in eternity of hell forever and ever. You want to be sure you're in the first resurrection which is the resurrection of the church and the saints. Then a little bit deeper, in Luke 17, Jesus compared his return to a couple of Old Testament events. One is the days of Noah. And he says, in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage until Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. And then he says, it will also be the same like in the days of Lot. People were eating and buying, drinking and selling, planting and building But the day that Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. And it will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Now, there's more into that, insight into that, just the simple fact that that Christ will come back when life is going on in the ordinary things of life. Eating, drinking, working, uh, being married, celebrating marriages and doing all of those kinds of things. It's more than just that. There's something that, that the flood and, and the, the punishment on Sodom and Gomorrah have in common. Actually, it's two things. First of all, the people were so wicked that God sent his judgment upon them, upon the earth in the time of Noah, and then upon the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we even see that, that they, they, they even staged, um, staged their own gay pride parades. And so God rains judgment on them. So it was a terrible time of disobedience and a terrible time of sin. And uh, God's judgment is really described in Revelation chapters uh, 6 through 19. And then the second thing that we see in common with this is that in the time of Noah and in the time of Lot through Sodom and Gomorrah, both times people were saved as a family. They were saved as a family before God sent his fiery judgment. And so I think that makes a reference to the fact that we are the family of God and that we will be spared from the destruction that will come on the earth during the time of the tribulation. Now, under point number two, and go back just to remind you of this, it says the second coming of Jesus is a series of events. I want to lay that foundation. And then I want us to look at what are these series of events. And I'll run through them very quickly. First of all, the rapture could happen at any moment. See, I think that's the next thing in God's plan uh, of the culmination of time. That that's the return of Jesus Christ to rapture the church and take us out of the world. Now, some opponents of that argue, and they are correct when they say the word rapture is not found in the English in the Bible. They are right. But I want to tell you two other very important words that we embrace that are not found in the Bible verbatim. 
Trinity. Look through your Bible and see if you find the word Trinity anywhere. Or they might talk about triune God, but they don't say Trinity. And that's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You believe in that? Sure, but you don't find that word in there. And the other is missions. Missions. And we believe in missions. We spend millions of dollars. We've spent three, three, over $3 million for the cooperative program for missions. So where do we get this concept of rapture? Well, um, it comes from the word that literally means to be caught up. The Greek word uh, harpezo. But for many centuries, the only Bible translation used was the Latin Vulgate. And the Latin word is raptio. And that really means rapture. And that's where we get that word rapture. So I think it's biblically based. The second step is then that the reign of the Antichrist will last seven years. After Jesus takes the church out, there will be the Antichrist who will bring about worldwide sense of peace and government for a period of time. And then all hell breaks loose, literally. And that will last for seven years and there will be destruction on the face of the earth. And you read through the book of Revelation and you'll just see how awful it's going to be. And believe me, you do not want to be left behind. And that seven year period of time is based on the prophecy of Daniel in chapter 9. Then the next step is that the return of Jesus will be to view the final battle and establish his kingdom. See, when Jesus comes, um, secretly, that's the rapture, like a thief in the night. But when he comes to establish his kingdom at the end of that seven-year period of, of tribulation, that's when every eye will see him and every nation will see him and everybody will know that he is coming. And that will probably be the time that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Savior. Some of them, it'll be too late because they're just acknowledging, yeah, you know what, guess what, it's coming true, just like the Bible said it would. Can you imagine that? Jesus comes for the final battle to win that, and, and it won't be a long battle. Satan's going to be bound temporarily, then he'll be let loose one more time. And Revelation 19 tells us that the sword will come out of the mouth of Christ, and he will slay those who have gathered against Israel and against God. Now you're wondering, okay, if we're raptured out, and the tribulation is taking place on the earth for that seven years. What are we doing in heaven? Good question. Let me tell you what's going to happen. First, Jesus comes on the clouds and he raptures the church and he takes us up there. And the first event that happens is, is that we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We are not judged to determine whether we spend eternity in heaven or hell. That's already been decided. We accepted Christ. We believed in Christ. We're in heaven. Okay. So what is our judgment? It's a judgment of our works and our faith and what we did with our gifts. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 3. If we build on hay, wood, and stubble, it's going to be burned up. But if we build it on precious metals, they're not going to be destroyed. And then you see we're going to get rewards based upon what we did. Jesus talked about that. Remember the parables he would tell? Give people responsibility. If they were faithful in that, he said, you'll rule over 30 cities. You'll rule over 20 cities. He said, what you had is going to be taken from you if you didn't do a good job of it. I don't understand all of this. He hadn't revealed everything about this in the future. But I believe that there are places of authority and leadership that we will have in, in the new millennial and the new kingdom of God um, that we do something important. And the better work we do here, the more responsibility we have there. You know, some of you might be saying, well, i got too much responsibility now. I don't want any more there. That's not the attitude to have. You don't, you don't want to work just for the rewards, but at the same time, you need to work to get the rewards because that's using your faith and living your life the way you're supposed to. Then the second thing that happens is, after that, is the marriage supper of the Lamb. The, the church is the bride of Christ. 
We sit down with our bride, a, a, a groom who is Jesus Christ. And we have the feast that he promised us when he gave us the Lord's Supper. And we sit down there at the marriage feast of the Lamb up in heaven. And what's going on on earth? The terrible tribulation. Now that's what takes place once we're raptured. Now doesn't that sound like that's, that's a better alternative to being left here to go through the tribulation? That, that, and if you really think about these, when people say, well, how, how, how we judge it? If there's that great white throne judgment for those who are not believers, then, you know, because some people say it's one general judgment. Everybody's grouped together. And I say, that's not so. Believers go out of this world and we have our judgment for a different thing. It's for rewards. Those who experience the second resurrection are those who died without Christ. They're brought to life. They go before the white throne judgment of God. And their judgment is that they have already been condemned to eternity in hell. So you, you, you can't have those two judgments as one. It's two sets of people. So there's two judgments, two resurrections, two judgments, two destinies, either heaven or hell. Now here's the third point for today. And that is the sudden return of Jesus has several implications. First of all, let me just underscore this. Jesus will return quickly. He will return quickly, instantaneously. It's going to be a very quick thing, just like that thief in the night. Night, the thief wants to get in quickly, get what he wants, and get out quickly. A couple of years ago, when Jay and Laura Beth were living over here in Legion Lakes, or might be called something else now, uh, there was a rash of break-ins. And Laura Beth happened to be home one day when a front door got kicked in, and the guy was coming in to do what they'd been doing all throughout that neighborhood. Most of those houses, you open the door and there was a direct shot to the widescreen TV and the computer and all that. They'd go in, they had it out, and they were gone in, in about 15 seconds. See, when Jesus comes, he's going to come quickly. It's going to be just like that. Boom, it's going to be quick, like a thief in the night. And the Bible says, you know, that, that we'll all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. What's the twinkling of an eye? Well, if you're real quick with blinking your eyes, I'm told you can do it in about one four hundredth of a second. Somebody more scientific says the twinkling of an eye is the time it takes light to travel from the front of our eyeball to the optic nerves behind your eyeball. And light travels at the speed of what, 186,000 some odd numbers per second, right? Miles per second. Now somebody calculated that, an engineering guy with his calculator and all that, that it's 0.6 nanoseconds. You know how fast that is? That's fast. You want to see how fast it is? Watch my eyes. You want to see it again? That's fast, isn't it? The rapture is going to happen so fast. Boy, it's going to startle the world. You're going to be there one second, and you're going to be gone the next. And those who are left behind are going to be looking around and saying, where do you go? Second, his return means a delightful experience for believers, but destruction for those who are left behind. So we already talked about what's going on in heaven. What will we be doing? We'll be in the presence of God for all eternity, but we're going to have our judgment. We'll be rewarded, and then we'll have the marriage supper of the Lamb. On earth, they're not going to have it that good. Isaiah said, see the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the holy and will humble the pride of the ruthless. The tribulation is going to be a horrible time. You do not want to be left behind. 
And the third thing I'll say about this is that believers should not be surprised by the return of Jesus. In chapter 5 of our scripture today, verses 4 and 5, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and said, But you brothers are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. No, it's not hidden from you. You know about it. You don't live in darkness. It's not something new to you. He says, You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. What he's saying there is, as believers in Christ, we need to be ready. And we don't need to be surprised by the coming of the Lord because it's going to take place and it's going to take place very quickly. The early believers had this concept that Jesus was going to come quickly. Paul, that, you know, that was the whole, one of the reasons why Paul wrote that part in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that they were wondering, okay, if the Lord's going to come back quickly and we've had these loved ones to die, what happens to them? Because they weren't alive when he came. See, they thought that he was going to come really quickly. And they had a word for that, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And they would greet each other with that. They'd greet each other with a holy kiss on the cheek, and then they would say, Maranatha. They would depart, and they'd say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Maybe we need to be excited about that. Are you ready for a miracle? Are you ready for the coming of the Lord? We need to be excited about that. Every day gets us closer. But see, I think the concept that has been misunderstood is when Jesus says, I come quickly, it's not a period of time talking about that, but it's talking about when he comes, it's going to be a quick and sudden thing, and we need to be ready for it. So, what do we want to be doing until the meantime? All right, here's a bad example. Don't do what this guy does, okay? No one knows exactly when Christ will return, but it could happen at any time, and every second brings us closer to it. That's why it's important for Christians to live every day as though it's our last day on earth. This is what I have done every day for the last three months. Wake up early, eat ice cream for breakfast, skip work, because who wants to work on their last day on earth? Tell my landlord that I don't have the rent, but it doesn't matter because Jesus is coming today. Call all my non-Christian friends and tell them each goodbye and tell them to send me a postcard from hell. Get dressed up in my nicest suit and climb up on the roof with a big sign that says, Welcome Jesus, and wait for the special moment to come. I do this every day, and even though my landlord is suing me, I've lost my job, and my non-Christian friends block my calls, I truly live every day as though it's my last. These have been Deep Thoughts from a Shallow Christian. Don't do that. Don't be like that. Let me give you three words to remember. This is what you need to be doing, okay? First is waiting. Wait patiently, but that also in there uh, is a concept that it is an active waiting, that you're not just sitting there waiting and twiddling your thumbs. You know, and, and Isaiah talks about those who wait upon the Lord. I mean, that means pursuing the Lord. So that means you wait as you pursue the Lord and, and grow and develop your relationship, okay? The second thing you need to be doing is watching. He told us to watch. We need to be watching. We need to be watching. It's going to happen quickly. We don't want to miss it. So watch. Don't set a date. Don't set a time. Don't get caught up in that. But just watch. Be ready at all times. And then the third thing to do is witness. Wait, watch, and witness. And that's the most important one of all. Because if you know somebody who's not ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ, they're going to get left behind. They're going to experience the tribulation. You need to witness to them because they need to be a part of the church that's going to be raptured out and be in heaven with God. Okay? Are you ready for the Lord's coming? Are you ready for the rapture? I, I, what I want to say to you as believers, I want to encourage you with that. It's going to happen. You know, 
It, it, it is going to happen. It's going to come in stages. You'll notice some things taking place, and then whammo, it's going to happen. The rapture is not going to be easy to predict. But the second coming, when he actually does come to earth, it's going to be seven year period of time before he comes back. The Bible tells us that, seven years. But I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged with the fact that God has not forgotten this promise. Every day draws us one step closer. Be encouraged about that. If you're not a believer, I want to encourage you to come to Christ today. See, why is God waiting? Why hasn't this taken place yet? We see all these signs around us. Well, 2 Peter 3, 9 says, God is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You know what? If you're not a believer, God could just be waiting for you. He could be waiting for you to come and make that decision before he sends the Lord Jesus back. So I want to ask you again, are you ready to go? Are you ready for the second coming of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ? Father, we thank you for your words that always are true. We thank you, Lord, that they always point us towards Christ. We thank you that your words today have pointed us towards the, the reality uh, of the return of our Lord, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that all of us here today are prepared for that hour. We might believe it within our heart and our life, but may we do even more than that. May we be absolutely sure that we're spiritually ready to meet with you, uh, that we've done everything, we've lived the way we should live, and we're ready for you. And Father, I pray that if there are decisions today that need to be made, that they will be made through the urging of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that in the name of Jesus Christ, our returning Lord and Savior, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And we love you and we call for decisions in his name. Amen.